Welcome to the Hunt the West podcast, where it's all about getting the job done, putting some meat on the table, and creating epic experiences to share around the campfire. At Hunt the West, my only goal is for you to get out and hunt. So let's get into it. Welcome to episode four, is hunting conservation? This is a big question, and a lot of people in the hunting community understand it, but it is a little bit of an oxymoron for people outside of the hunting community if you're not familiar with it. So we're going to answer that question, is hunting conservation today? The biggest thing you need to know before we even get into it is you need to think broad. Hunting a single animal versus the entire population of animals that you're talking about. Obviously, if you kill an animal, you're not conserving that animal. But we're going to talk about how the whole North American model of conservation is the best way to conserve wildlife and how hunting, if it does, fit into that. And obviously it does. This podcast is called Hunt the West. So we're all about hunting here. So let's start talking about the North American model of conservation. There are different ways that different countries and places have traditionally handled wildlife and wild places, but the North American model is by far the best model on the planet. It allows for the most number of animals to be conserved as well as helping people be able to participate and enjoy the outdoors. Like in Australia, for example, that's a good way of how not to do it. Hunting opportunities are really limited in Australia and the government ends up having to shoot the animals from the helicopter sometimes to thin populations that are over-objective. And there's a ton of wild, wild as in they're in the wild, but they're non-native species. And we have that here in the U.S. It's not perfect by any means. But the North American model has been proven to be the best model of conservation. So just to break this down for those of you who may not know, this is something that I didn't know. And then it's something that I've learned over the years. And it kind of is just how I grew up thinking about it because I always knew that you had to buy a tag and get permission from the government to harvest a deer or something. But that's not the way it is in other countries. Well, that's not how it used to be. That's not how it's always been. So this goes way back to the very beginning of the country and even before, like in Europe and in England, the wildlife, the wild animals and everything, they all belong to the king or the queen. And the idea of land ownership was way different than it is in the U.S. So the way it is now is the wildlife is part of a public trust. So just like a trust that you would have for your family, like my wife and I, we have a trust. We are the trustees and our children are the beneficiaries. So with this trust, it's a public trust where the government is the trustee and we, the people, are the beneficiaries. And you can argue the efficacy of government. Obviously, there's going to be a million opinions because this is bringing politics into it. I don't want to get into opinions right now. I'm just going to explain how it is set up right now and how hunting fits into that. Because government is just a group of people that are trying to get elected every year and it's not perfect. It's not a perfect way to do things, but this is how it's set up. So this all goes back way back into the 1800s. And there was a Supreme Court case that established that wildlife belonged to the people and not to the place where they're standing on the property of the person. Let me explain that a little better. So in 1842, there's a, a case called Martin versus Waddell. And it's a case that involved oysters and 
who the oysters belong to, basically. So there's a guy who owned land on the Tidelands, or that bordered the Tidelands, and he claimed that he owned the land and he had a title to it, and that title went all the way back to the Duke of York in the 1600s. So this was in 1842, so this has been a couple hundred years since then. And and then there was another guy who was digging up oysters on the shoreline after the tide went out, and this guy had a lease from the state of New Jersey to dig oysters. And so the case is called Martin versus Waddell, but it could have been as easily called Martin versus the state of New Jersey because Waddell just got a lease from New Jersey to dig oysters on the tidelands. So the whole case just came down to who holds the title to the oyster bed, the plaintiff, like Martin, or the state of New Jersey. And what they decided in 1942 has become a staple in how wildlife is managed in the United States. The Supreme Court concluded that New Jersey held the title, and they reasoned that the title to the land under the navigable waters, like when the tide goes out, that land is not a private property, but it's it's part of the public trust for the benefit of the community. Because the way that the law is written, the land under navigable waters belongs to the people under the public trust. That's how the law is written. And this case kind of confirmed that and has been the precedent since 1842. So this guy had this title that could be traced back to the 1600s, showing that he owned the land, but they ruled that his rights to the land under the navigable waters was surrendered to the state of New Jersey after the Revolutionary War. So that guy (laughs) kind of got the shaft in that sense because he thought he owned this oyster bed. But apparently he was on the wrong side of the Revolutionary War when it came to that chunk of his land at low tide. So the way it's written now in the United States since the Revolution, this is how it's worded. The people hold the absolute right to all their navigable waters and the soils under them for their own common use, subject only to the rights surrendered by the Constitution to the general government. So basically... The people own the rights to land under the navigable waters as the Constitution permits them to have. And so the way that those rights are handled are up to the states. So, for example, in Utah, if you're floating a river and you're floating through somebody's private property, you cannot put an anchor down or you're trespassing. You can't get in the water or you're trespassing. They own the land if the Water is in between two property lines. They own the land up to the middle of the water. But in other states, like I think Idaho and Wyoming are the same. There might be nuances in here, so obviously I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a dude talking on a podcast. But I'm pretty sure the way it is in Idaho and in Wyoming is the property line ends at the high water mark. So that's why you'll see guys climbing out of their truck on a highway and then walking up the river to the place that they want to go fishing but in utah that's still trespassing so as far as the law is written right now in 2019 again another disclaimer i'm not a lawyer so okay so that's kind of the overarching theme or how wildlife is managed so if you wanted to dig oysters under navigable waters 
you can get permission from the state to those oysters and you can go onto that land because it's part of the public trust and you are a beneficiary and how you enter those and what time of year that's up to the states and that's where state wildlife agencies come in and they allocate tags just like for deer and elk it's the same we the people own the wildlife and then the state decides how that wildlife is managed so prior to the 19th and early 20th century late 19th or early 20th centuries the wildlife was subject to the free market and then we all know what happened with the buffalo people there was a really high demand for buffalo pelts and people wiped them out and would take the pelts and then buffalo were nearly extinct Um, another example is in 1914 passenger pigeons (laughs) went extinct and i didn't know this but in 1918 there was a thing called the carolina parakeet And that went extinct because of high demand for their feathers for women's hats. So it was ultimately decided that wildlife is not subject to free markets and they had to put an end to open harvest of wildlife because species were going extinct. And you may agree or disagree with that. That is the way it is. Wild animals are not subject to the free market. So then the states, after an animal is legally harvested or a resource like a pelt or a, or antler shed antlers are picked up, then the state can decide how that is managed afterward. And then sometimes it can be sold on the free market. So antlers are a perfect example of this. That's a natural resource. Those animals will lose their antlers after winter is over. And then you can go pick those up and they can be sold for a price, whatever the market is supporting. So the free market kind of comes back into it after the natural resource is legally taken. And obviously poaching just throws the whole system out of whack. So poaching is bad. We all know that. But if you take an animal legally, you can you, you can sell the fur usually on a on the market after it's been taken legally. And those rules are prescribed by the state. So for example, in Utah, you have to get a fur bearer's permit. And then you can go hunt the fur bearers, and that's like um, beaver, badger, bobcat, um, coyotes. You don't need a fur bearer's permit. So there's different ways that they decide that. And then those resources can be sold on the free market, but it's all within the confines of the regulations that the state puts forward. So it's all managed by the states, unless they become endangered in that and. When that happens, they go onto the endangered species list and then they're controlled federally. And then also migratory birds are also, since they cross state lines so frequently, all the animals cross state lines, but migratory birds like ducks, some some of those species are managed federally. So these state wildlife agencies, they have to balance a lot of things in order to keep everything and everybody happy. They've got to balance adequate habitat, sufficient hunting opportunity they've got budgets and fund allocations they've got to worry about damage to private property if they have too many elk in an area then they can get into people's fields and cause a lot of property damage so they're balancing all of these things and just like anything else this has evolved over time different states have handled it in different ways and we learn new things every year so the laws change every year for how many tags are given out, what seasons, 
how long the seasons are, what weapons you can use. And all of this is a balancing act to manage healthy populations. Because each environment, say you have a mountainside where a hundred deer can live and there's enough food to eat, there's enough cover, there's enough water for 100 deer. Okay, we're going to just keep this simple. So every year there's going to be animals that die to predators, to exposure, um, and then every year there's going to be new deer born each year. And in a healthy population, the newly born deer are going to exceed the number of deer that are dying. So you're going to have an increase in the population. So you're going to have a surplus of animals. But so if you killed zero deer through hunting, you'd have, say, 120 deer the next year. And then there's not enough food for 120 deer. So then you're going to have 30 deer die from starvation instead of 20 or whatever the number is. So the great thing about hunting is you can have people that are paying the state to go harvest that natural resource and then you have an increase in your budget and then you have a population of well-managed animals that are at an appropriate level because like I said any healthy population is going to increase their numbers now if you have a population that their numbers are decreasing then the wildlife agencies are not going to allow hunting in that area or it's going to be very limited so for example moose and mountain goats in Utah are pretty limited They only give out a handful of tags for those each year, and they cost a lot of money. So you have a supply and demand and the market, but it's within the bounds of that the government sets. So if you limit this resource to people who are responsible hunters, then you can charge a price for that. So in Utah, if you were a Utah resident, it costs somewhere around $40 to get a hunting license, and then a a general deer tag costs another $45, I think. It's pretty cheap. If you're a non-resident, those prices go way up. So if you're a resident of Wyoming, you want to come hunt in Utah, you're probably going to pay four or $500 for a tag as opposed to 40 for a non-resident, or sorry, for a resident. So if you have a lot of elk that are really desirable in your state, you can charge a higher price for that, and that helps manage those populations. Because this all takes money, right? All the science that goes behind it, counting the number of animals in an area, we all want a healthy population. Hunters don't want to go kill all the animals and then not be able to hunt next year. We want to see lots of animals. And there's certain units that are managed for different purposes. So in Utah, we have general season elk units, and those are any bull units where you can shoot a spike, you can shoot a branch antler bull. And they're, it's an over-the-counter over counter tag. So as many people as they have tags can just go buy them. You don't have to apply for a lottery. Then there are other units where they're a limited entry unit where you put in your name in the hat and you get points every year. And then you can draw out a tag if they pull your name out of the hat. And in those units, there are fewer hunters and the general size of those animals is going to be bigger. And then this is how you can command a higher price and raise more funds for conservation. So there's the opportunity units where they're low price, lots of hunters, and then there are the trophy units, as they call them, in those limited entry units. They call them limited entry units. But this is how it's set up. And all of these decisions have to be based on science. Science is a core facet. Is that a thing? A core facet. It's like a facet of the North American model. 
all these decisions have to be based on science. You can't just listen to the farmers that say that there's too many elk, and you can't just listen to the hunters who are saying that there's not enough elk. You can't just listen to any one group. The science has to be the basis. So that requires money, and that requires detailed studies on population data and habitat thresholds and how many individual animals can be supported in that area and how many offspring are going to be produced. And you have to balance all of that with the number of hunters, the percent success rate of those hunters, what weapons are producing those numbers, and how they can predict the next year's tag allocation. And then we as the people, the beneficiaries of this public trust of these this wildlife and these wild places, public lands, as beneficiaries, we have a responsibility to be informed and engaged. And you're doing this right now by listening to this podcast. Now you know more than probably 95% of people when it comes to managing wildlife. This is just the basis. This is just how the North American model is set up. So the next step after being informed is to get engaged. And there's a lot of different ways that you can do this. I don't know what the best one is, but you can call, I mean, you could call Secretary Bernhardt. He's the Secretary of the Interior right now under Donald Trump. And you can call him up if you want, and you probably won't get a response. Like, Or you can call your congressman, and you may or may not get a response. I've emailed my congressman before, and I did get a response. And even though the response was not what I wanted to hear, at least I got a response. So you can make an impact by reaching out to your representative and let them know your opinion. But in addition to that, I think a more effective way is to find a nonprofit organization that you can that supports your values, and that is a great way of helping. So for example, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has done a ton in, as far as preserving elk habitat and sage-grouse habitat and increasing access for public or for for the general public another great organization is the backcountry hunters and anglers i'm a member of of bha they also do a lot of stuff like that so how does this help you with our goal of get out and hunt that's what this podcast is all about and the answer to that is if you don't have animals out there in abundance you're not going to be able to hunt if you don't have a place to go then you're not going to be able to hunt either so understanding how conservation works is is essential if you want to be a hunter in the west we have a very unique in 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 terms of the whole country we have a very unique set of lands here there's a lot of public land out in the west and if we want to keep it that way then we have to be informed of how it works i think i might do another episode on just the different types of of public lands and um what they all mean because there's a there's national forest land there's or national forest service land there's blm land bureau of land management land there's state trust lands there's wildlife management units or wildlife management areas and the laws for those are different in each state as far as how you can use them and they're designed to be multi-use so hikers bikers hunters fishermen we can all use these in our own different ways and that's really important too because Hunters are a very, very small population in terms of the number of people that use public lands. So when you're having conversations with people about public lands and you're only doing it in terms of hunting, that can turn a lot of people off because they're like, oh, you just want to hunt. You don't care about other things. And the truth is we do care about all those things. That's why I mentioned Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and how they help sage grouse. Like you think, oh, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, all they want to do is have more elk so we can kill them. But they preserve critical sage grouse habitat because the sage grouse is 
is um, on the decline. And it just so happens that sage grouse are kind of the tattletale on how a habitat is doing. So when you see sage grouse decline, you know that that area as a whole is on a, on a decline because those generally are wintering ranges for mule deer and elk. And if you don't have winter range, then you're going to have a larger winter kill. So preserving those habitats is really important. And if you think about it like this, if you have a large population of elk, that takes, that takes a lot of resources to stay healthy. Same with like grizzly bears. If you have grizzly bears in an area, that means that there are so many resources that it can support a giant predator. That's a sign of a healthy environment. Now, obviously, you can have too many grizzly bears when they start interacting with people too often. People get mauled or whatever. And then, obviously, that just goes back into how the wildlife agencies have to manage all of this. So, if anything, I hope this just helps you realize that this is really complicated. And so, if you're upset with the number of deer you're seeing in the unit that you've hunted since you your dad was a kid that could be because it's being mismanaged but you might not know the whole picture that's all i'm saying so it's our job as hunters to be informed about all these things and understand that things aren't always going to be the same populations of animals change that's the circle of life and then there's new developments of you know neighborhoods could be popping up in places that used to be winter range for mule deer and elk and the truth is we as humans we're here like we can't change that anymore we can't just let these things go without being managed we can't just say oh we shouldn't be meddling just let it be it'll balance itself out that i just don't believe that because we're we're here now and the only way that we could restore it is if everyone just popped and left like in that case things would eventually restore themselves back to the equilibrium but we can't do that so we're here we live in the valleys we live along rivers and that's where people like to live and so we there's inherent conflict in that so the best thing that we can do now is manage this the best we can and there are a lot of success stories there are tons of populations of of deer and elk that are increasing others are decreasing but we need to work to balance that out and see if that is preventable or if it should be prevented And just because you're not seeing enough animals in an area doesn't mean that it's the wildlife agency's fault. You know, there's a lot of things that go into it. You could have bad winters or the pinion junipers, they take up a lot of water. So if there's really high numbers of pinion junipers in an area, they can suck up all the water and then there's no undergrowth and then there's no feed for the animals. And so the animals move. There's diseases that come about. There's, um, chronic wasting disease which is a huge issue all over the country there's tuberculosis that can get from passed from domestic sheep to wild sheep and that's a big problem in montana i know they're trying to keep those populate those populations separate but the key thing is you are contributing to conservation when you are buying your hunting license when you buy a state parks pass when you buy a fishing license or a deer tag or even hunting and fishing equipment, there's a tax on that. And those funds go to conservation. There's also the Pittman-Robertson Act. When you buy ammunition, a portion of that sale goes to conservation. And again, you can agree or disagree with how it is set up now, but that's the way it's set up. And so when you're having these conversations with people and they think they have this cognitive dissonance between hunting and conservation 
you can now explain to them that it is you need to think more broad than the killing of a single animal. It's just like if you think of your muscle as an entire group of individual muscle fibers. If you want to make that muscle stronger, you have to break individual fibers. And it's just like with a with a population of mule deer. You got to take out some of the weak ones and, you know, those old mature bucks, which is what people want to hunt generally. You can take those out and then it makes more room for younger animals to fill in the space. And then you win as the hunter because you get delicious, organic, lean protein for your family. You get an experience that you're going to have for your lifetime and you get to contribute to the, the bigger picture of wildlife management in your state. So if you learned anything today, if you enjoyed this episode, um, if you got anything out of it, let me know. Write a review on whatever app you're listening to. Let me know if you liked it. We're actually running a contest right now or a giveaway. It's not a contest. <laughs> leave a leave a review and you'll be entered to win a free t-shirt with the Hunt the West logo on it. And I mentioned this in the last episode, but there's not a ton of, of people listening right now. So you have a pretty good chance and I'm not going to give it away to my mom. She's listening. So your chances just went up a little bit. So if you're listening in right now in October of 2019, go leave a review and you'll be entered to win that, that free t-shirt. So I hope this helped you understand a little bit better how conservation works in the West and how hunting fits perfectly into that model. And if you had any other questions or you want to just say, hey, you can email me at skyler at huntthewest.us and the show notes will be at huntthewest.us slash four. And I'll have links to some of the articles that I've been using for this and links to those court cases too. So you can read in more detail if you want. So go share this episode with a friend. This is a subject that all hunters need to understand. So go share it with a hunting buddy or somebody who doesn't like that you hunt or you've had friction with them in the past because you hunt or something. (laughs) Share it with them, send them over here and we'll explain it to them. But the most important thing is for you to just go out and hunt the West. 